All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor here, and we are starting a new sermon series this morning called We Are Trailhead. We're going to uh, be digging in, so I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles and flip over to Jeremiah chapter 29. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor in front of you or off the chair in front of you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 656, Jeremiah 29. While you're turning over there, um, I just want to acknowledge I heard last night that there was some exciting news. Um, something happened that, that hasn't happened since 1945. 75 years ago, Curious George had his first book. <laughs> Curious George is awesome, right? I grew up with Curious George. He's had an amazing run, right? An incredible series of books. Curious George goes to the zoo. Curious George goes to taco trucks. Curious George goes to Upside Down World. Curious George goes to the World Series. It's been pretty incredible. What, something else happened last night? All right, congratulations, Cubs fans. Um, we do want to acknowledge we have a mixed community, right? We're, we're technically in Cardinal Nation down here, but uh, I know we have a lot of Cubs fans, and so we want to celebrate with you. Um, as a, uh, an ardent non-baseball fan, I really don't care. Um, <laughs> I mean, literally, I didn't know what the hubbub was last night. I'm like, why is everybody? Oh, yeah. Um, but there are many, many dead people who wish they had lived to see this day. So if you're alive and enjoying it, celebrate for the dead people, okay? All right. Um, we're going to take five weeks, and we're going to be looking at some values that shape and drive our culture as a church, that make us who we are, right? Because our values shape our hearts and guide our hands. And so we're going to spend some time and talk about um, what it means to be Trailhead Church, who, who we are. We're going to begin by looking at Jeremiah chapter 29, page 656. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7, starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The word of the Lord. All right, so talking about Trailhead, I'm going to just start with the obvious. Trailhead's kind of a funny name for a church. I'm very aware of that. I have taken a lot of grief for that. Um, I want you to know, though, that uh, you need to have a little compassion. Naming a church is no easy thing. Um, when we started out, we were dreaming about starting a church and, and, and the rest of that, of course, you, you kind of have to come up with a name. And so I took my, my team, my launch team, and I'm like, hey, you guys, help me think of a name. Let's come up with a name for this church, right? And it's like trying to name a baby through committee. It, it, you end up with a big Google Doc with a lot of names, and pretty soon what ends up happening is you start getting little, little, little clicks of people that are, that are like rallying around different names, 
right? Like, like, like these people start really liking this name, and these people really start liking this name. And, and I could see in that moment what a great leader I was, that I was, in fact, actually, before we even planted the church, dividing it, right? We were going we were gonna to end up with a little bit of a world war uh, about the name of the church. And so I decided to do something a little different. Um, I decided to let the people we were trying to reach help us name our church. And so I created a focus group. Uh, and in that focus group, there were, there were people from Edwardsville, there were, there were, there were diverse uh, people from our community that, that we wanted to reach with the gospel. There were people that don't go to church at all um, as part of that group that had agreed to help me. And, and what I did is I came to them with a list of names, the top names that came from our Google Doc, and I'm like, just tell me what you think about these names. Tell me how you react to these names. And Trailhead kept rising to the top. It wasn't that I chose it. It wasn't that anybody on the team necessarily loved it. It was, it was that this focus group just responded incredibly powerfully to it. And so we grabbed it, right? And, and it does speak powerfully to our identity. There, there's a trail systems that, that run through the Metro East. I don't know how many, you know, what, 100 miles of trails? They, but they connect all the different townships and all the different communities of the Metro East. And, and, and there's real pride in our trail system. There's a lot of joy in our trail system. And, and so it's one of those things that, that draws people here and one of the things that we all share in common. Um, but it also has a, a very powerful spiritual meaning, right? The trail head is, is the beginning and the end of the trail, right? It's where it starts and it, it's where it ends. If you want to get all biblical, you can say it's the alpha and omega of the trail, right? It is the beginning and the end. And, and in that sense, it's a perfect reference to God, the beginning and end of our story, the one who started this whole thing, the one who's going to wrap it all up. Right? And, in, and in between uh, the trailheads, in a sense, we're on a journey, and we're journeying together in life, finding our way from the beginning to the end. And, and we as a community have decided to travel together as a church. Now, the word church literally means called out people. The Greek word, ekklesia, literally means the called out people. Right? So, so in some ways, you can't really go to church, <laughs> you are the church, right? We don't, we don't meet in the church. We're the church that meets in this building, right? The building is the, the, the place where we meet. Um, the people are the church. And as we travel together as the people of God, as the church, as trailhead, we have to make choices. What path to take? What hill to climb? When to take the high road? And those decisions are informed by our values, and we have a set of core values. They're based out of Acts chapter 2, where, where the church was born, the early church. Um, and, and we've done a number of series, a number of sermon series, through the core values of the church. And I would encourage you to get on our website. If you haven't, we have a, a, a rich archive of sermon series from the last five and a half years uh, of being Trailhead Church. And, and there are some great sermon series that talk about our core values. Um, in this series, instead of unpacking the five core values specifically... What I want to do is I want to talk about how those core values play out in specific ways. I'm going to be looking at, at, at in a sense, extended values, how those values inform how we do life in some key ways. Um, and this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the core values that, that we call mission. Okay? And a mission is simply a, a, a word that describes the purpose that drives our behavior, right? We are a people with a mission, and, and we're on mission. And this morning, what we're going to take a look at is the fact that we're on mission, not just to be in the city, but to be for the city. The reality is churches often have a horrible, horrible reputation with leaders in the community because churches can often be very self-focused. 
churches begin and they're very inwardly focused. Their, their, their main concern is how do we take care of us? You know, what is this community going to do to serve us? And, and they become very insider-focused and outsider-judgmental. And, and that's, that's not good um, because they end up in the city, they end up taking them from the city, but they often don't give back to the city. We want to be a church that's in the city, but we want to be a church that's for the city. And that's exactly what God's getting at when he's talking to the exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, Jeremiah isn't a book that you've probably read a lot. Um, it is one of the less cheerful books in the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah had a pretty rough go of it. Um, he pretty much spent his entire life in ministry and only had two converts. And uh, most of his life he spent despised and rejected. Uh, he's often called the weeping prophet. Um, but it wasn't because he was weak. Um, it was because he just lived in a really, really hard time. And, and he was called by God to speak into a very hard situation in which he was um, speaking to people who didn't want to hear him about situations they didn't want to be going through. He was a prophet who lived and wrote about 2,600 years ago. It was about 600 years before uh, Jesus was born. And he was writing when Israel was in exile in, in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem had been sacked, and uh, the people had been taken captive uh, their homes had been destroyed, their jobs had been lost, their economy was completely um, disrupted, and, and there was a forced migration, a forced relocation of an entire people group from Israel into um, Babylon, which would be today um, in modern-day Iraq. The people that were there wanted to go home. But God in Jeremiah 29 is saying, look, you're you're going to be here a while. You're going to be here a while. So while you're there, build lives worth living. Build homes. Raise families. Plant your fruit trees. Enjoy life. And while you're there, live for the good of your city. Verse 7 is kind of the, the, the thrust. It says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have called you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, there are two striking things that we see um, in this right off the bat, and in fact would have stood out very clearly to Jewish readers. Notice that he doesn't say, seek the welfare of the city where Nebuchadnezzar stuck you after he conquered your city, killed many of your people, disrupted your lives, and relocated you as a people group. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I sent you. Can you see where those would be hard words for the original Jewish readers? Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice man. <laughs> and he was not leading a campaign of kindness he was in many ways evil and violent and narcissistic. And what had happened to the Jewish people was evil and wrong. He had violently assaulted the Jewish people, the people of God. He had taken away their freedom. He had forced them into a life of subjugation. He had removed from them their way of life. 
All the while, he blasphemed their God and insulted his authority. And they were taken to the city of Babylon. Now, Babylon is not a great place to be. I mean, you want to talk about a bad city? Every bad city in the Bible is compared to Babylon because it's the worst. It's, it's like the prototype of bad cities, right? So, so if you're in a bad city in the Bible, it ends up getting compared to Babylon. It is materialistic, violent, full of the worship of false gods. In fact, the name Babylon means the gate of the gods. They, they worshiped many, many gods, gods like Ishtar. Ishtar was the goddess of war and sex, great combination, the goddess of violent passions. And they had in her temples what they called sacred prostitutes. What we're describing here is, in many ways, sex slavery. People that were slaves that were forced into sexual service, oppression, abuse, child abuse, slavery abuse. I mean, how can God say, I sent you into captivity. I sent you. All right, when it comes to God's control in our lives, there are two errors that we can fall into. The first is to think that God's just not involved, that God's absent and distant and, and, and concerned with, with bigger things, um, as if God were limited. <laughs> That's how we often think about God. Uh, we think about ourselves. When I get overwhelmed, I don't pay attention to the details, so God must not be that concerned with the details of my life. He has bigger things to pay attention to, as if his attention span were limited. Um, that's an error, right? God pays attention to all the details. God is fully present in every situation. God knows all things and, and is not distracted from anything, right? So we can fall into the error of thinking that he's gone and he doesn't care. The other error is to think that he's responsible for everything that happens in our lives, that he is the author of all of our suffering. And when we think of him this way, we often portray him as a bit of an evil puppet master, somebody who is capricious, will bring both blessing and pain. This is a very complex theological issue that um, is hard to think through, but one of the words that I have come to really value is the word concurrence. It is a theological word that speaks of two things that happen at the same time that are inter- interrelated but also independent. And when we think about God's control in our lives, um, I think it is best to think in terms of concurrence. In other words, think about it like this. People tell their own stories. People make their own choices, right? You made your own choices. You decided when to get up this morning, or your kids decided when you would get up this morning. You decided what you were going to wear. You decided what you were going to eat. You decided whether to do good. You decided whether to do evil. And you are responsible for the choices that you've made. And other people have made choices in and around your life that have affected you. Some for good and some for evil, and and they are responsible for the choices they have made. But while you are telling your story and while they are telling their stories, God is also telling His. But He's doing it in ours. See, God works out His sovereign will 
through the agency of our choices. God isn't responsible for all the evil you've done. God isn't responsible for all the evil you've suffered. But He isn't absent from it either. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. See, this statement would make absolutely no sense if God were completely absent from the choices and behaviors of mankind. Concurrence. We are responsible for the choices we make, but God is not absent from the stories we tell. He is in His sovereignty telling a greater story through our stories, and He will weave all of our choices together to tell a great story of redemption and restoration. That's the promise and, and, and incredible nature of God. See, God isn't responsible for all the evil that happens in our lives, but nothing that happens in our lives is outside His power to redeem and restore. God is telling a greater story through all of the lesser stories of this world. So this is challenging, right? When he says, I sent you into captivity. That is, that is challenging, but there's also comfort in it because it means that God's not absent from it. This didn't take him by surprise and, and, and this didn't derail his plan, right? Nebuchadnezzar meant it for evil and Nebuchadnezzar was held responsible for his attitudes and his actions. But God is saying, I'm in it and I will use it for your good and for my glory. And because of this, even though you're in a position of suffering, even though you're in a place you don't like, even, even though you're, you, you've, you've suffered injustice, you can seek the welfare of your city while you wait for me to undo what he has done. While you wait for me to come with a delivering hand. You can seek the welfare of your city. Now, the word welfare in Hebrew is the word shalom, which is a word that most of us have heard. It is a, the Hebrew word for, for peace, right? Um, Jews would use it uh, as, a, as a means of greetings. They would say shalom, which meant peace to you, right? In the same way as the Greeks would say karate, which was, which was a way of saying grace to you or greetings to you or warmth to you, right? The Jews would say shalom. It was, it was their greeting, but it was much more than just a greeting. It was much more than simply saying I hope you have a lack of conflict today, right? I hope you don't have a lot of fights today, right? When, when Scripture speaks of shalom, it's not simply talking about the absence of conflict. It's talking about the flourishing of life. The idea of shalom in the Hebrew Bible is a word rich with meaning. When we're talking about shalom. We're talking about the state of existence that we were created to enjoy. Life with purpose, life with meaning, life with value, life with richness and fullness, all the things we crave in life. Shalom. Live for the shalom of your city. Which would have been a shocking thing for God to say. In that place, in that culture, while you're exiles in this degraded way, live for the shalom of your neighbors. Because in their well-being, you'll find yours. 
when a culture thrives with the presence of shalom, the genuine blessing and fullness of God's presence, everyone in that culture benefits. He's saying live in such a way that you bring the shalom of God into that world. So what does it mean to live for the shalom of your city? Well, he tells us in verse 5. In verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and, and build your life. Build your house, plant your garden, build your life. What's so special about building houses? What's so special about planting gardens? How <laughs> is planting an herb garden in my backyard uh, living for the shalom of my city? Right? I got a really good salsa garden. Right? Hey, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Right? Lauren knows how to grow, like, tomatoes and peppers, and we make great salsa. But I'm, like, falling short of understanding how that lives for the shalom of my city. It's good for my belly. But how is it good for my neighbor? Well, maybe I share. Maybe I don't. But I think we're talking about something much more than just the herb gardens that we're growing in our backyard. You guys, Adam and Eve were placed in a garden in Genesis 1 and 2. Right? Garden of Eden. Yeah. So it was a garden. What's a garden? What's a garden? Why, why would he place them in a, in a garden? A garden is a cultivated place of wildness. A garden is a place where order has been imposed on the chaos of what is. So in other words, there's a lot of natural resources. There's a lot of life, and it springs up, and it grows chaotically and randomly. A garden is where we take order and impose it on chaos. A garden is where we make something of what is. You guys, that's the gift of culture. God gave Adam and Eve the gift of culture. He said, look, here are all the raw materials of life. Here are all the raw materials of, of, of this world. And I'm going to give you a head start. I'm going to create a garden. I'm going to put you in it, a cultivated place of wildness, a place where I've begun making something of what is. Now I want you to bear my image, be like me, and make culture. I want you to preserve, protect, maintain the gift of culture that I've given you, and I want you to create new culture. I want you to push it out. I want you to, to be creative and, 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 and move out in the skills and in the talents and in the knowledge that I've given you. Yes, culture is what we make from what is available. And in that place, what he was telling them is build a culture of shalom. Build a place where life thrives. Build a place where you can experience the fullness of my presence and the fullness of all the gifts that I have given to you. Build something. See, a garden is a rich, powerful image of the gift of culture. Andy Crouch wrote a very helpful book called Culture Making. And in this book, he talks about the difference between cultural postures and cultural gestures. And I thought it would be helpful to kind of pull this out this morning as we're talking about living for the shalom 
of our city, which means engaging in culture and building culture, right? We're not just talking about planting herb gardens. We're, we're talking about engaging in and, and building culture in uh, this land in which we find ourselves exiles, right? So what's the difference between a posture and a gesture? Well, a posture is a position you take. A gesture is a movement you make, right? A posture is a position you take. It's rigid. It doesn't change. A gesture is a movement you make. It is, it is responsive and contextual, right? So I make a gesture based on, on the, the input that I get. I adopt a posture, um, which is a more permanent position, um, based on other, other things, right? So there are three ways to respond to the culture around us, right? We can, we can reject it, we can embrace it, or we can critique it, right? We, we, can, we, can, we can reject and condemn it, or we can embrace it and consume it, or we can critique it um, and analyze it and sit over it, right? Now, when we think about these, these are really, really good gestures, and they're really, really bad postures. There are some churches that have set in their culture, in their value systems, a uh, posture of rejection. I, I attended a church like that. I became a believer in a, in a church setting like that. It was a church setting that, that rejected or condemned culture, and they just had this kind of blanket attitude that condemned all culture. People still consumed it, but they did it on the sly, <laughs> right? They did it in the shadows. They, they would do it, and they wouldn't talk about it in church settings. They would talk about it in the, in the private settings, right? Because in the church setting, um, there was uh, an understanding that, that the world was evil, and to be worldly was evil. And so since it's evil to be worldly, you, you, can't, you can't really consume and be involved in, in culture, right? They adopted a posture of rejection. Everything outside of the Bible was frowned on, is tainted, right? Movies were bad. Eating out, especially in places that served any kind of alcohol, was bad. Um, technology was bad. Like, this was a church setting that literally debated whether or not they should use a piano to accompany the worship music because piano was seen as technology. It is. Dated, but it is, right? Um, the irony of this is they thought they were rejecting culture. They thought they were condemning culture. What they were really trying to do was freeze culture. They found a manifestation of culture they found comfortable, 1940s, 1950s, and they decided they just wanted to freeze culture and then reject any development in culture from that point forward. And so they continued to wear their clothing from the 1940s and 1950s. I'm kidding, but similar, right? The worship style, the technology, right? Why, why piano, no piano? Because the piano didn't become popular until after the 1940s. I don't know. But, but they became resistant to cultural change and ended up, in a sense, idolizing a specific manifestation of culture and rejecting any development from that point forward. It's a horrible posture. The rejection of culture is a, is a horrible and, in fact, impossible posture because we're all cultural. When you choose what clothing to wear, that's cultural. When you choose how to wear your hair, that's cultural. When, when you choose what language to use, that's cultural. When you, when you decide how you're even going to cook your food, that's cultural. You can't reject culture because it is 
the air we breathe. It is the way we express ourselves. It is the meaning we develop in life corporately. We were created for culture. We were created for culture. We were created to be cultural beings. Are there things to be rejected in our culture? Absolutely. Sex trade. That is a cultural manifestation that is more popular and more freely embraced in certain parts of the world than in others, but it is abhorrent and should be rejected. Pornography. The abuse and the objectification of the human body for personal pleasure. Corporate corruption and greed. The abuse of of finances. The, The centralization of power to reduce personal freedom, creativity, and choice. These are things that that I think should be rejected in culture. Absolutely. See, it's a great gesture. It's a horrible posture. You following me? It's a great gesture. It's a horrible posture. When these things come at us, we should reject them, but it's a horrible posture. Good gesture. Some churches like to take the posture of embrace or consume. They just consume everything. Right? In churches that are, that are embracing culture uh, and taking a posture of embracing, you know, they, we're not here to judge. That's not our role. Our, our role isn't to judge or, or to be mean or to reject. We're just here to enjoy, right? We don't need to be negative. We just, we just want to enjoy our lives, right? We're very happy, tolerant people. But you guys, there are things in culture that shouldn't be consumed, just like there are certain kinds of food um, that you really shouldn't eat, right? And, I, and I'm not talking about the tasty stuff from fast food. Like things are rotten and nasty, and we just know that should not go in my mouth. There are things that are produced in our culture that should not go in our eyes and shouldn't go into our ears and shouldn't be considered and treasured in our hearts. See, consuming culture is a great gesture. There are things to be consumed. There are many things that should be consumed and enjoyed. A great meal, good drink, a good film, a thought-provoking and delightful play, music that stirs your soul. And I'm not just talking about things that are, that are all happy, slappy, and positive. There are things that are hard and negative but are beautiful nonetheless. They explore the human condition. They explore the human conflict in ways that are thought-provoking and challenging. And, and there's great beauty and benefit in consuming these things and considering them. There's a lot to consume that is life-giving and worth celebrating. But there's a lot that really shouldn't be. (laughs) And if we are mindless consumers, we're going to eat a lot of rotten stuff. We're going to let a lot of rotten stuff just embed itself in our brains and embed itself in our hearts. Consuming is a great gesture. It is a horrible posture. Some churches have taken the posture of critique. These churches tend to be a little bit more of the intellectually elite. Um, They often stand apart and above broader culture, even their own culture. In these churches, you, you just can't enjoy something. You always need to compare it to something better or to something worse. See, critics are the ones who sit on the sidelines of culture and critique those that are trying to make it. Constantly 
comparing it to one thing to build it up or to tear it down. And, and those that are honest about their critique of culture, they often have certain parts of, of culture they absolutely love and maybe even idolize, and those become the standards by which they compare everything else, and their continual attempt is to show how nothing else measures up to this thing, this manifestation of culture, this, this part of, of whatever it is. See, those that critique have a, a posture of critique stand apart, and they stand above And they tend to either love and worship what they see or feel compelled to poke holes in it and make sure everyone else sees how it falls short. Are there things in our culture that should be critiqued? Absolutely. Absolutely. How can we improve anything if we don't critique it? Right? In politics, we should be about critique continually to find what is good and strong and healthy to build on it, but to find what is broken and not working to to reform it or to reject it. Critique is absolutely necessary in in our entertainment and and, and in in our kitchens, in, in our schools. We need to be those who do critique. It's a wonderful gesture. It's a horrible posture. Because we're not here looking simply to praise or condemn. We're here to improve and make better. So I want you to see these, these are perfectly appropriate and good responses to culture, but none of them are complete. But here's the challenge, you guys. We're being asked in, in this passage to do something different. God doesn't say condemn everyone else's house and garden. He doesn't say, go consume everyone else's house and garden. He doesn't say, go critique everyone else's house and garden. He says, go build your own house and plant your own garden. It is good to engage culture carefully and thoughtfully. It's even better to be intentional about seeking to make culture. To seek the welfare of our city. We need to be culture makers. Those who interact with the city around us in a way that we are seeking to build something worth building. So how do we do this? A couple tips as we seek to do this. First, you need to work out of your kingdom identity, not for your kingdom or for your identity. Let me explain what I mean by that. You're going to work out of your kingdom identity. All right, the Jews were in Babylon, right? They, they were in a foreign land with a foreign language and a foreign culture. They never stopped being Jewish. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't adopt things from Babylon that were worth adopting. It doesn't mean that they didn't consume things in Babylon that weren't worth consuming, right? They, they, they became integrated, in a sense, in this new world. Doesn't mean that they didn't critique things, didn't need to be critiqued, and they didn't mean they reject things they, they should reject, right? But here's the thing they never stopped being Jewish. They never stopped obeying God in the midst of a culture that had rejected obedience to God. They had never stopped worshiping God in a culture that had rejected worship of God. They had never stopped allowing their faith to influence and drive their choices. They lived as resident aliens. They could live as resident aliens for the good and for the shalom of their city without putting their roots down permanently in their city. 
they lived as those of a different kingdom, right? Like the Jews in Babylon, this isn't our permanent home. We are resident aliens. Some of you are like, Steve, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Of course this is my home, man. I'm born and bred. I'm 100% pure American, right? I got, I got American running through my veins. I speak American. I eat American. I vote American, right? Here's the thing, you guys. I'm not talking about your nationality. I'm talking about your identity. Your identity. How you see yourself and identify yourself. Those things that are most critical and crucial about who you are and and, and what makes you you. See, when you believe in Jesus, you're made a citizen of God's kingdom. And you pledge your allegiance to an eternal king. And that means this world, that means this country, as American citizens, no matter how patriotic you are, this is not your true and lasting home. And it is not to be what holds your full and unquestioning allegiance. Hebrews 13, 14, the writer of Hebrews says this, For here, that is, means in this world, in this place where we live, for here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Here in this world, we have no lasting city. Every nation, every kingdom, every political movement that has already existed on the earth (laughs) has emerged, had its glory, and died or is in the process of emerging, having its glory, and dying. There is no city on this earth that is eternal in its nature. We are citizens of a heavenly city, a city that is to come. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is often called the chapter of the hall of fame of faith, it's a list of all these people who lived by faith and lived by faith and did these amazing things at the very end of that chapter. It says they lived as those who had no home. They lived as those who were part of a city they had not yet received. For here we have no lasting city, but seek the city that is to come. You guys, America is not God's country. Never has been. Never will be. Because America is not the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean I'm not patriotic. I love America, and I'm glad I was born here. And I'm thrilled to live for the shalom of my country. I am thrilled to live for the shalom of my city. But I am not first an American. I am first a child of God and a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. So my hope isn't in this world. My hope is in the kingdom of God. And in some ways, this, this nation that we live in is, is good. And in some ways, it's great. And in other ways, it's evil and despicable. Because every earthly kingdom is a manifestation of the glorious ruin of our hearts. As those who were made for glory but are ruined by sin, every culture we create is a reflection of both the glory and the ruin. To be truly patriotic then, 
to really live for the good of our country and our neighbors requires us to live first as citizens of God's kingdom. That's where we set our hope. That's where we find the foundation of our joy. We operate from a place of security in God's love and His promise of blessing. We operate like those who were in exile in Babylon. God promised them, I will not leave you there. I will come and deliver you. We live with the same promise. I will not leave you there. I will come and deliver you. See, if we don't do this, if we don't root ourselves first in our identity as as those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, instead of working from our kingdom identity, we'll end up working to build our own kingdoms and establish our own identities. We will try to build our own glory and make our own meaning. We will try to define and expand the boundary of what we think makes us important. For some, that's going to be power. For some, it's going to be security. For some, it's going to be the glory and fame that we get from others. For some, it's going to be the the ability to live a comfortable and undisturbed life. But when we are delighting in our own kingdom, our own strength, We cannot live for the shalom of our city. We are living self-centered, self-focused, self-building lives. And just like everyone else, we'll be disappointed. Because we cannot build a life that is full of the shalom of God unless it is founded on the work that God did to bring us into shalom. It begins with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it wasn't simply a declaration that our sins had been paid for and that we could now have free access to God. It was that, but it was much more than that. It was a declaration that a new kingdom was dawning. A new morning was born, and and, and we haven't seen the full realization of it yet. We haven't seen the full manifestation of it yet, but it is here because it's in us, the people of the resurrection those who have believed in Christ and walk in the power of His resurrection, we are the very presence of the kingdom of God in a world that is lost and broken. Secondly, we need to live out the values of our heavenly citizenship. This is where we need to get good at making cultural gestures instead of adopting cultural postures. We need to allow the values of God's kingdom to drive our motivations and our behavior instead of the American culture. <clears throat> this is going to be hard because we're cultural beings, which means we tend to flow with the, the stream of our culture, right? There are a lot of things in our culture that influence how we think, influence our values. We don't even look at them. We don't even analyze them because everyone around us thinks the same thing and values the same thing, and, and so we don't even see them, and yet they are currents that drive and influence our behavior. As those who are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we need to analyze the motivations of our hearts and see if they are in line with the kingdom of God or or if they are really just manifestations of an American culture. Take, for example, monetary profit. I mean, it's no no debate that, that America is a materialistic country. 
<clears throat> we love money, right? We love wealth and we love wealthy people, right? The only thing you have to do to be famous in America is have a lot of money. You can act like a buffoon and we're still obsessed with you. Why? Because you have a lot of money. It's also no secret that you can pretty much get away with anything in America if you have enough money. Money is power. Money is influence. Money is fame. And for many people, money is meaning, right? The American culture quietly but strongly reasserts that those who have more money are worth more value. Those who have more money are smarter. Those who have more money should be listened to. Those who have more money should be given preference. Those who have more money should be people that we, we give way to. If you profit enough, the ends justify the means. All right, listen, there's nothing wrong with profit. And there's nothing wrong with money. The Bible has a lot to say about the value of working hard. The Bible has a lot to say about being smart with the way you handle your money and, and building up wealth, not just for yourself, but for the generations that follow you. Those are, those are qualities that are actually praised in Scripture, that, that a godly man actually leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. That, that is somebody who has lived wisely, worked hard, and, and, and built up equity in his life. There is nothing wrong with profit and nothing wrong from profiting from your work. But the Bible also has a lot to say about the danger of the quick buck. About our desperate yearning for the shortcut to riches. In fact, it says very clearly that, that money that is accrued quickly and without work comes with great sorrow. Most of us just don't believe that when we buy our lottery ticket. And think, mm, maybe I'll win $500 million. I know it'll bring problems, but that's the kind of problem I'd like to have. Right? We need to live our kingdom values, not American values, which means we need to check the motivations of our heart. Riches that are gained in a health hasty way uh, through ungodly means bring great sorrow. Profit that is made from wicked behavior or injustice and the oppression of others brings great sorrow. We need to check. That's just one example. We need to check the motivations of our heart to make sure that they're being influenced and driven by kingdom values and not American values, right? Work for profit is a great gesture. It's incredibly appropriate to work hard and seek to gain profit. It is a great gesture. It is a horrible posture. When everything you do is driven by the need for profit. We need to discipline our hearts to live out our kingdom values and allow those values to trump our earthly values. So we don't live for profit, although profit is good. We don't live to make our family look better in public, even, even though it is nice when our family looks good in public. We, we don't live for political advantage, even though there's nothing wrong with political advantage when it's gained in the right way and operated and used in, in healthy ways, right? Gestures, not postures. Thirdly, we need to seek to be a blessing. We need to seek to be a blessing. To seek the, the welfare of our city, to seek the, the building of shalom in our city, 
We need to be more than just passive consumers. Taking what we want, rejecting what we don't. We need to engage in a way that brings blessing to others. Trailhead Church, followers of Christ, listen to me. We of all people should be intentional about living our lives in such a way that we are being a blessing to others. A blessing to our cul-de-sacs. A blessing to our schools. A blessing to our children's sports leagues. A blessing to to our, our city council. A blessing to our neighbors. A blessing to our workplaces. We need to engage in a way that brings blessing to others in such a way that our presence gives them a taste of the shalom of God. That our presence is a taste of of, of the goodness and the fullness of life of somebody who is living not for self-gain and self-glory, but from hearts that are gripped by grace and motivated by love. By hearts that are rich in the overflow of the fullness of life and not grasping to take the fullness of life from others because we think when they have less, we have more. In our work, in our leisure, in our recreation, in our art, in our science, in our kids' sports leagues and city council, we need to seek to be a blessing, especially to those who can do nothing for us. Let that sink in, especially for those who can do nothing for us. So we all see the self-interest in being a blessing to those who can be a blessing to us. We all kind of see the benefit of, well, if I'm nice to this person, I might get something back. Or if I'm pleasant in the workplace, I might get a better cubicle or a promotion. If I'm, if I'm more uh, amenable in this area, I might gain some. That's not kingdom value. That is a perversion of kingdom value. Um, it's actually American values parading as spiritual values. Listen, Jesus valued the outsider. Jesus valued those with no power. Jesus listened to those with no voice. Jesus gave honor to those with no honor. He was always on the margins of culture, giving dignity and presence, giving his ear and his eyes to people that nobody in that culture valued, which is why the power players of that culture were always angry at him. It wasn't because he was out there. It was because they wanted him in here. He made them feel less important by investing his energy with people who were less important. And they became offended and angry. Because he wasn't playing by the rules. He wasn't following the cultural rules of giving honor to the people we say are honorable and giving voice to those who we say should have a voice and giving power to those that we say should have power. We need to seek to be a blessing to everyone around us, especially to those who are weak and vulnerable, especially to those who are hurting and on the margins, especially those who might be the most annoying to us because in their pain, they're making a lot of noise. And in their suffering, they're demanding justice. See, in the kingdom of God, the least is the greatest, and humility is strength. 
We need to be looking around as we move through our day, asking, who can I bless? Who can I offer a smile to? It's as simple as that. Who can I make eye contact with to humanize them because nobody else is even looking them in the eye? Who can I give the gift of presence to when nobody else even wants their presence there? Who can I offer help to that needs help but doesn't even know how to ask for it? How can I sacrifice my comfort for their good? How can I leverage my talents, my resources, my social capital for the good of my neighbor? When we talk about living not just in the city but for our city, We're talking about living for the shalom, the flourishing of life that comes from living in the kingdom values of the gospel, as living as people of the resurrection. Now, as a church, we try to do this in many ways. We've modeled this. We've shared this. Many of you have led me in this, and I love that, right? We have have faithfully served at things like the Criterium. You know, we're the setup and teardown team for the most part for this thing, right? We're the guys working behind the scenes doing a bunch of stuff, and I absolutely love that. We're the ones that have been have the great privilege of operating as a cooling station, right? You know, just opening up and providing services and, and, and um, being a place to be a blessing um, for things like Criterium and parades. We have contributed to the food pantry. We, we give financially to the, benef- uh, the benevolence needs of our community. We host Affordable Christmas, which is... Um, a huge event in which we serve a ton of families, hundreds of kids, hundreds of kids, providing them with a way to have um, a Christmas experience um, on an affordable budget in a way that dignifies and blesses them. But listen to me. Listen, 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 listen. When I'm talking about us living as blessings, when I'm talking about us living for the shalom of our community, I'm talking about a lot more than just giving your money or giving a weekend of your time. (laughs) I'm not talking about a gesture. I'm talking about a posture. You want to adopt a healthy posture? Adopt a posture of blessing. Every day. Living in such a way that you are a blessing to the people around you that you are representing the fullness and the shalom of God, that you are living out of the grace you've received to love those that are unlovable, to help those who need help, to be a blessing to those who need blessing, to simply be a better employee, right? To actually do your job, right? And not just show up and clock out and, and spend most of your time with, with um, the time wasters, Right, actually being, okay, I'm glorified, God, I'm going to glorify you today by actually doing my job. <laughs> Nobody's paying attention. Nobody cares. Maybe you work for the government. I don't know. But, but, you know, you can just show up and clock in and clock out, right? But it's like, no, Lord, I'm not working for the paycheck. I'm working for you. I'm actually going to do my job. I'm actually going to be a blessing to the person in my, my office who, who is just over there isolated and lonely, maybe unpleasant. I'm, I'm going to be a blessing to them. I'm going to be a blessing to everybody on my team, even though I get nothing from it, even though I'm not going to get the glory for it. I'm going to do some stuff in the background nobody sees that's going to make other people look good. I'm going to be the person who walks into the break room and it's a mess. I'm going to clean it up and I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a blessing. It is a posture. The problem is we want to make that a gesture. 
I put in my time. I did my weekend. I put in my time. I gave money to that special offering. I did that thing. I'm talking about adopting a posture of being a blessing to our community. Living in a way every day that enriches the people around us. That helps build the welfare of our city. Trailhead Church, let's be a church not just in the city, but for the city. All right. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into time of response. <clears throat> Put some questions up on the screen. We're going to share communion, um, but we'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you have given us this great city. I thank you that you've given us this great church, man. This, this is your church. I have the great privilege, Lord, of being your under-shepherd, but you are the lead shepherd. You are the senior pastor of this church. You are the one who is creating and forming this body. You're the one who has placed us in this city. Lord, lead our hearts to be a blessing, to live for the welfare of our neighbors, because in their welfare we find ours. As we live in grace, we live in the benefit of grace. As we live in love, we live in the fullness and the overflowing, the benefit of that love. Lord, let us be a people radically undone by the great gift of your Son. Undone in such a way that our hands are loosed and our hearts are free. That we are generous with our blessing. Quick to offer our love, eager to sacrifice our comfort for the blessing and well-being of others. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.